Today is a good day to stop and consider what it costs to be a leader. Hey, welcome to On My Walk, the reading podcast that helps you capture reading's aha moments and apply them to your life and leadership. The year is 1911. Woodrow Wilson has long harbored a desire to be a political figure of national prominence. However, despite that long-held dream, his path has been academics. He graduated Princeton College, earned a Ph.D., became a professor, first at an all-girls college and then at Princeton, and from there, his rise is meteoric. From professor at Princeton to the president of Princeton, from the president of Princeton to the governor of New Jersey. Could the White House be in sight? Well, in January 1911, it was a long shot, but it was possible. Biographer Scott Berg writes, William Jennings Bryan was the party's elder statesman, though he was only 51, four years younger than Wilson. And while he probably would not head the Democratic presidential ticket in 1912, why? Because he had lost the party's nomination in 1896 and in 1900 and in 1908, still, Bryan could certainly help determine the nominee of the Democratic Party to run against the Republican in 1912. And like any politician, Wilson was on the hunt to win votes. So was Ellen Wilson, the wife of the then governor, and so was Joseph Tumulty, an attorney and a New Jersey politician who would become Wilson's secretary and political advisor. When Ellen got wind that William Jennings Bryan was coming to town, she asked him to dinner. Now, at that time, she and Woodrow didn't know Bryan, but she was going to make sure they did. And she reaches out to her husband, who's in Atlanta, and she said, you need to hightail at home and be at this dinner, because she recognized Building a friendship with Bryan would pay huge political dividends, and it did, for the Democratic presidential nomination, and ultimately, after Wilson won the presidency, Bryan would become his Secretary of State. So Ellen looked at her husband, and she saw the need to leverage Bryan's political capital. But Tumulty, he looked at Wilson, and he saw something else. Tumulty saw the need for Wilson to loosen up. <laughs> Listen as Berg describes what happened next. At the same time, Tumulty felt compelled to inform Wilson that a good number of lawmakers, especially Republicans, still found him professorial and doctrinaire, that they sensed a cold austerity that prevented that intimate contact that was so necessary to push through his legislative program. Eager to display Wilson's good nature, Tumulty arranged a dinner at the Trenton Country Club for senators from both parties. They gathered in a private dining room where three black musicians played old Southern favorites. Wilson was at his most charming all night, even when Republican Joseph S. Freelinghuisen walked up to the governor and challenged him to a Virginia reel. For the next several minutes, the governor of New Jersey and the president of the state senate twirled and do-si-doed around the room to the delight of their legislature. Some days later, Wilson found himself at a fried chicken supper and led another formidable Republican around the floor in a cakewalk. This is what it costs to be a leader, Wilson wrote Mrs. Peck, realizing the political gains far exceeded the losses of dignity. They know me for something else than an ambitious dictator. On April 13, 1911, the Republican-controlled New Jersey Senate passed the Guerin Bill, unanimously and over the next week the legislature closed its session by passing Wilson's Corrupt Practices Act, 
his Workmen's Compensation Act, and another act giving a public commission control over state transportation and utilities. Former rival George Record now proclaimed, The present legislature ends its session with the most remarkable record of progressive legislation ever known in the political history of this or any state. For that he credited the governor, who had delivered on all his major campaign promises and who had effectively put machine politics out of business in the state, all within three remarkable months. After dealing with college politicians, Wilson explained, I find that the men with whom I am dealing now seem like amateurs. A great second leader is unafraid to tell the first leader what he or she may not want to hear, but needs to hear. And in this case, it was, Governor, you need to loosen up. And what does Wilson do? He drops his formality, he drops his professional pretentiousness, he drops his dignity, and he gets out on the dance floor, and then he marches on a cakewalk. Why? To show the voters a human side they very much needed to see. And my aha moment was when Wilson, reflecting on those moments and then writing to his friend Mrs. Peck, writes this, This is what it cost to be a leader. So my aha moment was when Wilson, reflecting on those experiences and writing to his friend Mrs. Peck, said, This is what it cost to be a leader. What does it cost to be a leader? Well, I tell you what it costs. It costs giving up one's dignity from time to time to let people see a human side. It costs making a long trip in a short time, in this case from Atlanta back to New Jersey, to maximize a moment that could pay huge dividends as it did when Wilson left to go meet with Brian. Those who lead know that leadership comes with a hefty price tag. Tom Peters said, leaders don't inflict pain, they bear pain. And that means leadership costs bearing the pain others are feeling, always through heartfelt empathy, and sometimes even by being a bit of an emotional punching bag for others who feel the need to let out their frustrations on the leader. Let's think about this a little bit more. What does it cost to be a leader? Well, it costs walking alone in some seasons. It costs the anguish of making a hard call that you know won't satisfy everyone and may, in fact, be very painful for someone. It costs being misunderstood in an attempt to communicate a point. It costs the risk of rejection. It costs the anguish of living with occasional misunderstanding. It costs keeping one's mouth shut when the leader's idea is critiqued or the leader herself is under attack. There's this interesting passage in Paul's second letter to the Corinthian church where he's defending, and appropriately so, his apostleship. And in describing the things he suffered, he adds this very telling line. He writes, And apart from other things, there is the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. Here's what Paul is telling his friends in Corinth. This is what it costs to be a leader for God. And whether it's the loss of dignity from time to time, or the loss of time, or the loss of other people even just getting it, as Wilson said, and Paul demonstrates, this is what it costs to be a leader. And if you've been in the leadership game, you know this, but 
As Samuel Johnson has said, we need to be reminded much more than we need to be instructed. What's it costing you these days to be a leader? Don't be surprised when you go to the leadership checkout line and you find the price is really high to pay. Because this is what it costs to be a leader. And leaders gladly foot that bill because they know God's called them to this and it's worth it. And that's my thought on my walk with A. Scott Berg and his insightful biography of our 28th president, simply entitled Wilson. Now, my question is, what will you do with that thought on your walk through life today? Hey, one last thing. Let me encourage you to head over to onmywalk.com where you can find my review of Wilson, where you can find links to purchase the book in paper or electronically, or get it via Audible, as well as other books I'm reading or have read. I think you'll find it a very helpful resource. 